Reading from the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting, it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. This is the word of the Lord. Somebody's praying. I can feel it. Somebody's praying. Mighty hands are guiding me 
to protect me from what I can't see. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Somebody's praying for. I can feel it coming like a mighty wind. Strength to face the battle one more day. Somewhere in the world there is a faithful friend lifting me to heaven as they pray. And what would I do? And where would I be without your love standing by me to all the warriors in my life? There is no Is treasured more than words can say. When I was falling, you saved the day. Standing between my soul and dark despair, I always Keeping hope and faith alive, prayer warrior you are. Yes, you are a hero in my eyes. I have often wondered how you always knew when the pain was more than I could bear. Somehow you would sense my need and pull me through with the power of your fervent prayer. And I promise you that when your time comes, I'll be there too, holding you up to all the prayer. treasured more than words can say. When I was falling, you saved the day. Standing between my soul and dark despair, I always knew you were kneeling there in the watches of the night, keeping hope and faith
And may He keep you, and may He fill your heart with joy, and let His favor shine down on you, and may you love Him more and more. I pray you love Him more and more to all those. treasure more than I can say. When I was falling, you saved the day just in time. You stood between my soul and dark despair. And I always knew I could see you kneeling there in those watches of the night, keeping my hope and faith alive, prayer warrior you are, yes you are, a hero in my Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for those prayer warriors in our lives, people who lift us up, who come alongside, who encourage us and speak on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king who is present among us, but you are also the king who is at the right hand of the Father, and you are praying for us too. You are our prayer warrior too. Thank you that you intercede on our behalf. And Lord, thank you that we are just reminded through our songs and our time this morning already that you are the king, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. Lord, we need that reminder continuously to recenter our lives, to resettle us, to check our priorities under your kingship. So I pray that you'd help us to do that this morning. I pray that as we come to your word, this chapter in Acts, that you would give us again an insight into how you work behind the scenes and the ways that you function as our warrior and as our king. We worship you this morning, and I pray that you would Help me, guide me in my words as we look into your word to accurately, correctly communicate what you have for us today. May all the praise and glory go to you. May the help come from your spirit, and may we be guided by your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
So glad that you're here, Trinity. Welcome this morning. I'm Pastor Jeff Gangle, and glad to be back as in town. Beth and I have been gone for a couple of weeks, and um, if you saw the video that we sent out yesterday, you saw part of our return home yesterday, but I wanted to begin by telling you a little bit about the, the adventure going to Canada. We uh, usually try to get there to visit Beth's family, who are all up in Canada, uh, at least once a year, but it's been almost two years since we've been able to be there because of border closings and so on. And, and uh, so we uh, scheduled this trip actually a couple months ago before we knew if U.S. citizens were going to be allowed in. And a week before our trip, sure enough, they opened the border and we were able to go, but not without a little bit of adventure. So we flew into Buffalo, which is what we usually do. Usually Beth's family comes and picks us up there, but they can't come into the U.S. yet. So in Buffalo, we had to call on a friend who lives in Buffalo to pick us up at the airport and drive us to Niagara Falls, New York, the city of, and drop us off there. Not like in the falls, you understand, in the city, a couple blocks away from the bridge. The Rainbow Bridge is the one that goes across right from New York, Niagara Falls, New York, to Niagara Falls, Canada, Ontario. And so we were dropped off, we got out of the car, we pulled our luggage out of the trunk, and we started dragging our suitcases the couple blocks to the bridge. It was a very strange feeling if you've never been in that situation. Just kind of everything you have, you're just walking, and you're going to make this border crossing on foot. And so we got to the gate on the American side, and it's pretty ominous looking. There's all these warning signs about what it takes to cross this border. And so we went through the little gate, and we're walking across. And we decided we were a little bit anxious because, you know, even though we'd done our preparations, you never know what they're going to ask you or what they might require, something we forgot, something that we missed. Who knows when you get to the other side of those Canadians what they might do to you. But, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm married to one, so... Um, so halfway across the bridge, we just had a little fun with it. I took a few pictures. There's a boundary line. I mean, the, like the border right there. So pictures right there. There it is. International boundary line. So U.S. and Canada. This is right in the middle of the bridge. So I'm on the American side as the U.S. citizen. Beth on the Canadian side as the Canadian citizen. But on the bridge, you don't go through customs and, and immigration until you get to the Canadian side all the way over. So continue our walk. We also took a picture from the Rainbow Bridge. You have a beautiful view of the falls. And so here's another picture. There's the Horseshoe Falls behind us, right up the river from us. So we continue on across the bridge, and you get to the other side, and all plastered on the doorway into the Immigration Border Patrol office are all some more warning signs. Don't enter. You cannot enter unless you have this, and you have this, and you have this. So we stood in line. Here's another picture of Beth standing in line. We're so close. There's Canada right through that door. But we're standing in line. They would only allow one family group at a time into the door, up to the window. Would we be allowed in? Would the gates open? So we walked in, got to our turn. We walked in. The border lady was so kind, so friendly. She took our, looked at a few of our documents, said, have a great time with your family. And we walked in. Just like with Peter, the gates opened. <laughs> And we went into the country. Now, in thinking about that, because part of that's because it's just a recent experience for us. But I thought about this because, you know, when we were planning to go, we asked, many of you did pray that the doors would open, that we would be able to go in to visit Beth's family. We had friends and family members praying the same thing. God answered those prayers. He opened those doors. There are times, though, when we pray and we're not sure if God's going to answer or how God might answer. It may seem like 
a really big deal. Sometimes we wonder, is God really listening? Did He hear my prayers? Does He really care? When we get to this whole issue of prayer and answered prayer, sometimes we struggle with this. And so our passage today really gives us some insight. Um, you know, last Sunday, Jason preached on the end of Acts chapter 11, and he talked about how, how sometimes God works in ways, when, in, in the midst of all the chaos, God is still at work, but it's often behind the scenes where we don't necessarily know. And unless the eyes of our heart are opened, which is what we do pray for, we may not see what God is doing. But the book of Acts is a great vision, a window into God's work behind the scenes. And I love that. Jason shared that last week. And that's true for today's chapter as well. As we get to Acts 12, it's another window. It's another view into God's work on behalf of His people. And so if you're not there already, please turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, in your Bible, in your phone, electronic device, whatever you have. We're, of course, still in this series in the book of Acts. We've titled it, To the Ends of the Earth, because we're seeing how God moved through events and through people and through, even through persecution to take the good news message of the, of the gospel to the world. And in our passage today, Peter sees the power of the true king at work on his behalf in opposition to the one who held the title king, who is Herod. So we have in this chapter this, this contrast and, and this conflict between two kings, the real king and the supposed king. And I've chosen as the title for today's sermon, Who's on the Throne? Because I think it's an applicable question, not just about who is really on the throne over world events and circumstances of our lives, but who personally is on the throne for your life. Who are you serving? Who are you following? So let's dive into this, this wonderful story in Acts chapter 12. So the action is now moving from Antioch, where we ended at chapter 11. We're now back to the the city of Jerusalem for the action here, and the persecution for the, of Christians is continuing. We've read about that for a couple chapters. It's still going on. In fact, it's ramped up. King Herod is getting in on the act here. He's begun arresting Christians. So pause for just a minute. Who is this guy? Who is this King Herod? Well, he comes from a pretty nasty family line. If you know anything about the Herods, all the different Herods, and it's easy to get them confused in the Bible. This guy that we're talking about in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa I. But he had a grandfather named Herod the Great. He was the Herod who sent out the order to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, age two and under, as an attempt to kill the Messiah. Herod Agrippa is the nephew of Herod Antipas. He was a different Herod. He was the one on the throne who had John the Baptist beheaded. So you see a pattern in this family of murder and hatred. And so now Herod Agrippa gets in on the act. He begins attacking the believers. And why would he do this? Now, the Herods were not Jews. They were Edomites, and so the Romans had put them in charge over the Jews. So there was a lot of animosity there between the Jews and the Herods. And so Herod had figured out this was a way that he could earn favor with his Jewish subjects by persecuting this small sect called Christians. So that's what he did. He begins to, to in, imprison them 
And it's a significant shift here because no longer was this just persecution from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, not the Jewish leaders only. Now the government is getting involved. Now King Herod's involved. So he arrests James and has him probably beheaded. He's killed by the sword is what we're told in the text. And this James is the brother of John. So remember the two disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder. This is the James who is killed by Herod. As far as we know, the first apostle, the first disciple to be martyred. And this pleases the Jews. So the text tells us, Luke tells us in the text, Herod arrested Peter as well. He's going to try him and probably with the intent of killing Peter as well. But it's the Passover. And so in deference to the Jews, he's waiting. And in the meantime, Peter is in prison. And you have to get the feeling here, for the Christians in Jerusalem, things looked really bleak. I mean, this Herod had political power. He had military power. Now he's against us too. Things look bad. And Herod was not messing around, at least with Peter. Maybe, maybe he knew the story about Peter's previous arrest, you know, when the religious leaders arrested him and he was put in the, the local jail and an angel broke him and all the apostles out. We had that story just a couple chapters ago. So Herod's going to make sure four squads of four soldiers each, probably on shifts, so that there was around-the-clock watching of, of Peter. And with those four, two were right there, were told, in the cell with Peter. Two were probably just right outside the cell. And Herod has set up a maximum security prison for this one prisoner, Peter. He doesn't want to lose this guy. What are the Christians doing? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the, whole, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, Again, get the sense here. This had to be hard. One, it was hard because it was persecution. It's hard because this is Peter, well-loved. He was the spokesman. He was the leader. And he's in prison and probably going to die. They'd already seen what Herod did with James. They certainly expected the same thing was going to happen to Peter. How could they possibly, how could he get out? How, you know, what it could possibly take place to free Peter now. Things looked bad. And it looked bad also because I'm sure when James was put in prison, the believers were praying for him too, right? But he wasn't freed. He wasn't rescued. He was killed. So what do you do? Are you a group of Christians praying? Wouldn't it be a little bit of a struggle to pray for Peter's release when God had not done anything to save James? Surely they were at that point, too, of wondering, does God hear us? Is He here? Is He going to protect us? Is He going to save us? Here's the first lesson in our passage. Don't let fear or discouragement keep you from praying. These believers surely were struggling with fear and discouragement. They're facing persecution. They'd already seen James murdered, and still they prayed. We have times in our lives as well, times of fear, times of discouragement, times of difficulty, times when we don't understand God's ways, we don't know if God's answering, we may not like the answers that we're getting to our prayers, we can't figure out what God is doing. What's our job? What do we do? We're called to pray. We're called to pray. That's our part. 
God's part is to do with those prayers and respond and act as He chooses to in His sovereign view of things, knowing what He knows that we don't know. We pray. And it's instructive to know what they did not do here. So the believers are not, you don't see them outside demonstrating outside Herod's palace. They're not revolting against his rule. They're praying for God to intervene. They knew this was only something God could, could handle. And what is Peter doing? Is Peter, Peter down in his cell, you know, arguing with the guards and banging on the bars, demanding his own fr- freedom and demanding his rights and demanding that he get a hearing before Herod? He's sleeping. <laughs> Peter is sleeping. He surely knows this is probably his last night. He's in this cell. He's chained up between two guards, but he has such a confidence in God's plan for his life that he can sleep. That is just, that's amazing to me. It's a little detail in Luke's account, but it shows a confidence in God that I desire for my life, and probably you do as well. See, Peter understood if he died, he would be with his Lord Jesus. And if he lived, he would continue to serve his Lord Jesus. It's the same thing Paul says later on. Those were two great choices. Peter's not upset, he's not worried, he's sleeping. How do we learn that kind of confidence? I think it comes by praying when things are hard. It comes through prayer. It comes as we pray for freedom from the things that cause us fear and worry, that cause bitterness and anger in our lives. See, for us, it's not freedom from a literal prison like it was for Peter. It's freedom from the things that hold us back, from the sins that keep us from trusting. Sometimes we pray for our own freedom, and that's good. We should be praying for that. Sometimes we're praying for the freedom of others, and that's good too. Allison's beautiful song, which she wrote, by the way, it's her own song, prayer warrior. It's a reminder that we need those people praying for us, and we need to be praying for others. That's a significant ministry. I just thought of this. Our last evening with Best Family up in Canada, Friday night this past week, um, her mom, who is about to turn 92, um, she is one of those prayer warriors. And as all the families kind of gathered, kind of our last time together before we would leave early Saturday morning, she kind of quieted everybody down from the usual discussions going on. And she said, I just want you all to know, I pray for you and your children and your grandchildren every morning and every night. That's a prayer warrior. And that's what we have here. These Christians despite their fear, despite the danger, despite the persecution, they're doing what will give them the greatest confidence and hope. They're praying. See, the problem is a lot of times when we get in, stuck in fear and, and things are crazy around us in our lives or in our world, we do everything but pray. And we miss the one thing we need to do most. Those prayers 
are the prayers that build our faith, that build our confidence in God's plan. Those are prayers that will diminish our fear, diminish our worry, diminish our anger, diminish our bitterness. Those are prayers of freedom. Don't let fear or discouragement keep you from praying. So what happened to Peter? In God's sovereign plan, he had more work for Peter to do. He wasn't, it wasn't time for Peter to go home. So God sends his angel, and as I already mentioned, this is Peter's second angel-assisted prison escape. I think that's pretty extraordinary. I don't know that there's many people that can say that. God sent an angel two times to get me out of prison. That's what Peter can say. So notice how it happens in the text here. You heard Beth read it. An angel comes. The light fills the prison. Peter's so dead asleep, that doesn't even wake him up. So the angel has to strike him on the side. Can you imagine being woken up by an angel hitting you on the side? So that's what the angel does. He strikes him. He says, Peter, get up. You put on your clothes, put on your sandals, get your cloak, follow me. We're leaving this place. And so Peter gets up. He's kind of in a, in a stupor. He thinks, that Luke tells us, he thinks it's a vision or a dream or something. He doesn't know this is actually happening to him. And so they walk out past the guards. Luke doesn't even tell us. Were they asleep? Were they blinded? Whatever. They didn't know. They couldn't stop. The angel and Peter walk out, out of the prison. And Luke uses here as they come to the gates leading out of the prison itself, a Greek word, it's very interesting, it's the Greek word automate. Sounds real familiar, right? It's where we get our word automatic. So Luke tells us the gates opened automatically. Like the angel had a transponder in his pocket or on his windshield or something. You know, like they opened the gates. And the gates open and they walk out and they're in the city and all of a sudden the angel disappears. Peter's left standing there and he's probably pinching himself and he realizes this is not a dream. This is not a vision. This is real. I'm out. And so what does he do? Luke tells us he goes to the home of Mary. There's a group meeting there, probably a regular house church. Maybe that's how Peter knew to go there. Mary is the mother of John Mark. There's another good name drop because we're going to see more about John Mark in the next couple chapters as he goes on the first missionary journey. He's also the author of the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. That's who we're talking about here. So Peter goes, and I love how Luke tells us the story. He comes to the door, and the servant girl named Rhoda answers the door. Well, she doesn't actually open the door. She goes to the door. Peter's knocking and apparently saying, hey, it's me, it's me, it's Peter. And so she recognizes his voice. She's so excited and joyful that she leaves. She doesn't even open the door. She goes back into the group of believers, and she says, it's Peter at the door. And what what does the group say to her? You're out of your mind. (laughs) That's the text. You're out of your mind. You're crazy, Rhoda. Leave us alone. We're praying for Peter. He's in prison. We need to pray for him. No, no, he's right here. He's at the door. You're out of your mind. Let us pray. He's in prison. And she keeps saying, he's here, he's here, he's here. Until finally they say, well, okay, it must be his angel. That's their answer. It's his guardian angel. They're ready to believe that before they're ready to believe it's actually Peter. Finally, they go to the door. And Luke says when they open the door and they see Peter, they're amazed. Now, here's what I learned from this passage, this this fascinating story. Because this is so much like us. A lot of times when we pray, we pray with great hope, 
hoping God will answer our prayer, that He will intervene, that He will do something. But we don't pray with a whole lot of faith that He'll actually answer. And that's what this group of believers apparently was doing. When God answers, they don't even notice. They don't even believe it. But notice this too, that God's answer and God's involvement was not hindered by their weak faith. God could still move. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about, well, you know, if we just had more faith when we prayed, then God would respond and answer. God's not limited by the amount of our faith. This group prayed, and they didn't know, they didn't really believe that Peter would show up at the door, and yet God answered their prayer. God worked despite their lack of faith. And so this is our second principle this morning. When you find yourself in those situations, fearful, difficult, struggling, don't let weak faith keep you from praying. Even if you sense that weak faith, still pray. If you're not sure what to ask for, just pray. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to pray. When the situation seems impossible to you, I don't know how God could possibly do this, well, pray because God's got a way that you haven't thought about. Even when you don't really believe that God is going to answer, still pray. That's what we see in the believers here. I'll give you just recent examples of this, of this for me. A few weeks ago, uh, Francis Harris, part of our congregation here, was, went through open-heart surgery. Many of us were praying for her recovery, but the recovery was more difficult than anticipated. She had to go into ICU. There were complications. There were struggles. And it got to one point. I don't know if some of you felt this, but I really felt, I, I was worried, I was concerned she was not going to make it, did not look good. My faith was weak, and I, I'm really happy to acknowledge that. There are times when I say, I just don't think this is possible, but I still need to pray. In fact, when your faith is weak, that's probably when we need to pray the most. Don't let weak faith keep you from praying. Let me give you another example of this. When our, when our kids were first uh, learning to do puzzles, they were just little, we would pour out the puzzle pieces on the table or on the floor, and, and they would look at those puzzle pieces in a pile. It's like, that looks impossible to a child, right? There's no way we can get put something together out of all those many pieces. It'll never work. It seems impossible. But the fact of it being impossible is what leads them to say, Mom and Dad, will you help us? And when we helped, the puzzle was solvable. We could put it together, and they could see that. Sometimes we need impossible puzzles in our lives because that's what will put us on our knees and asking God for help, depending on Him for help, rather than what we usually do, and that is depending on ourselves. We don't let weak faith keep you from praying. In fact, weak faith should motivate you to pray even more. So God did the impossible. God set Peter free. He goes and tells the group, he says, tell my brother James I need to move on. This is not the James who was murdered by Herod, obviously. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's going to emerge as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We'll see him again in chapter 15. Peter goes off. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us where he went next, but he's back in Jerusalem when we get to chapter 15. And what about, what about Herod? 
The other king in the story, this murderous king who opposed the church of Jesus. I love the way Luke now weaves in the rest of the story. It probably was a, a bit of time, maybe, maybe even a year after this that we see the rest of the story. Let me pick it up in verse 18. It's where Beth ended her reading this morning. In the morning, there was, not, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Can you imagine the discussions going on? What, how could this guy have just disappeared? After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. Uh, it must have been interesting to hear their stories about what this, right? He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. This was Roman policy that Herod was going to. If if a, if, a, if a guard let a prisoner go, if they escaped under their watch, then the sentence of that prisoner would fall on the guard. Apparently, all 16 executed. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So catch what's going on here. The king, he walks away from these problems in, in Jerusalem. Some months later, he goes to Caesarea out on the coast. The cities of Tyre and Sidon, also coastal cities, they're in need of Herod. They need his support because his territory has the food supply that they rely on. And so they're coming to meet him in Caesarea, and they're ready to say whatever he wants them to say or agree to whatever he wants them to agree to, to flatter him however he wants to be flattered. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his, royal, on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod believes his own press. Instead of saying, no, God is God and I'm only a man, Herod enjoys this praise for himself. But God does not ignore those who try to steal his glory. And he does not ignore those who oppose his church. And so verse 23 says, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Man, what a terrible, terrible ending. That's got to be a tough way to go. Josephus writes about this whole incident, by the way. It's always interesting when, when history lines up with biblical history and Josephus writes about the whole thing of Herod's address and the people calling him a god. And Josephus says he suffered that agonizing death for five days before he finally died seeing the judgment come because he would not give glory to God. And this is, this is what we learned from Herod's demise here, our third point today. Don't let pride keep you from giving God the glory. Don't fall into the same thing that Herod did. Don't let pride so get in the way that you think it's about you rather than looking to God. And it didn't seem, of course, right away that Herod was going to have to pay for his sins, for his murderous attack on God's church, but he did. And that's always the case. Here's where our warrior king steps in at times and ways that we may not see it even coming. 
God always has the last word. Always. And He will defeat those who oppose Him. In the ultimate sense, He will will defeat those who reject Him. And this is good news if you've chosen to serve the king, not so good news if you oppose him. And like Herod, when we live for ourselves, when we claim our own kingdom, when we want the praise, when we want the glory for ourselves instead of living for his praise and his glory, then we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side too, on the losing team. We can't end up there. God offers his glory to us but He offers it when we humble ourselves before Him. Then He shares His glory with us. We don't get glory by glorifying ourselves, lifting up ourselves. It never works that way. We end up like Herod. Remember that passage in in James 4, 6? And James is actually quoting a proverb here. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's very few words, but that is such a dynamic principle, and that's what we see lived out here, King Jesus and King Herod. Don't let pride keep you from giving God the glory in your life. I notice the ending here. Herod's own words, of course, lead to his death. What about God's words? Look at verse 24. But the Word of God continued to spread and flourish. (laughs) Luke just drops these in every once in a while. Things look bad. Things are going crazy. And Luke says, yep, but the Word of God just kept going out. It just kept spreading. More people coming to Christ. The church kept growing over and over again. Nothing can stop it. And if you see nothing else, I hope you see that in our passage this morning. Persecution could not hinder the gospel. Prison could not hold the gospel. Death could not stop the gospel. Human opposition only increased the spread of God's word and the growth of his church. The warrior king wins. You know, we're living in chaotic times. We've said that a number of times this week and past weeks. Jason said that in his prayer as we started our service this morning. And I just have been, as I'm sure you have too, just been heartbroken over what's going on in Afghanistan and Kabul and the suffering and the the fear and the terror going on there. And I read a story the other day, it just just happened a couple days ago, a a Christ-based organization came alongside with the help of some Italian military They were able to go into Afghanistan and rescue three Christian Afghan families who were in danger. To 14 in all, seven of them kids, and get them out. I'm sure we're going to see lots more of those amazing, miraculous stories of rescue, similar to Peter's rescue. It's happening right here today in our world too. Just didn't want you to miss that. But there's also 12 to 14,000 Christians, that's best guesstimates, in Afghanistan that are not going to get out. They're going to be there, and, the, yeah, and we know the persecution is going to intensify for them under the Taliban rule, right? What do we do? We pray. We need to be praying. It's where the battle takes place. Just like the church did for Peter, we need to be in prayer for Christians in Afghanistan and other places in the world where persecution and danger is greatest. 
We need to be praying for one another in the battles that we fight on a day-to-day basis. And we need to be ready to act. I told the first service this story and because I just heard, heard it this morning as I, we were preparing and praying before the service, first service this morning. Uh, Mike Mendonca, some of you may know Mike, some of you may not. Mike has been heading up our homeless ministry in Atlanta. And for a long time before COVID, we were sending, collecting, oftentimes collecting clothes, and a lot of you given to that. We would make uh, food, and a lot of you came on Saturdays and made sandwiches and so on, and we would send all that down on Sunday afternoons. Well, that hasn't been able to happen for over a year and a half. So Mike's been looking for a way. How, what do we do? Because he, he collected all these clothes and blankets and things that people at Trinity and other places have given. We got an opening and got a contact with somebody in Clarkston. It's just east of Atlanta. And if you don't know about Clarkston, it's a melting pot of refugees from all over the world, right in here in our own city, in our own state. And with a contact there, he took all these clothes that you all have donated and began giving them out in the name and the love of Jesus. You didn't even know that some of the things you gave were blessing people from all over the world, people who've gathered there from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Somalia, from places where there's intense war and persecution. When God gives us opportunities, we give, we share, and we pray. When our world, when our lives are in chaos, we need to remember who is the true king. We don't get flustered. We don't become afraid. We don't worry and fret. Like Peter, we rest in confidence in the sovereignty of our God, and we pray like the Christians that God will do what only God can do because we know who the king is. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reminder that we can have such confidence in your kingship, in your sovereignty, and other pretender kings or authorities or powers, whether it be Herod or the Taliban, have no authority. You are the king, the only true king. And so, Lord, we come alongside, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other parts in the world where they are under persecution for their faith. Lord, we ask you in some cases that you would rescue them. We love it when you do that. But, Lord, if you don't, we pray that you would give them strength and stability in their faith, that they would remain true to you even if they give up their lives, because even in dying, they will be victorious because they'll be with you. So, Lord Jesus, teach us that confidence. Teach us to pray. Teach us to trust. Lord, don't let fear or anxiety get in the way of us praying. Don't let our own weak faith get in the way of us praying and giving and sharing and speaking. May we represent you as subjects of the King. In whose name we pray, amen.